Just before, before we start, though, do you mind if I make a quick call? Is that all right? I just need to make a quick call here. Um, bear me two seconds, and then we'll, we'll get into the other stuff, you know? Um, but I just need to do this. It's quite important. Um, yeah. Should be ringing, I think. Oh, there we go. You are through to the Northern Ireland Housing Executive. We are currently experiencing a high number of calls, but we will be with you as soon as possible. Please stay on the line. going to wait. I'm not going to wait. Believe it or not, I must hear that jingle about once or twice a week in my job. Um, it pierces the back of my ear like it really hits you. Um, and I have to hold my phone a few inches away. And I sit and I wait for an answer. Sometimes I don't even get one. Uh, I need information. I have questions that I need answering. At other times, there's something important that I need to actually communicate to the housing executive. Information to impart that will hopefully change a circumstance and a client that I'm working with. And you know, it can be really frustrating when you're waiting there, and even when someone does come across on the other line and answers, the outcome isn't always what I'd hoped for. As Steph's already said, we're continuing our, our series, Holy Habits, although it's kind of taken a, maybe a different turn over the next few weeks. We're going to be going through a common theme um, as we begin to saturate ourselves, hopefully, in the practice of, of presence and prayer with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I don't know about you, but prayer, for me, can invoke all sorts of thoughts and feelings, yeah? I suppose it's most basic form in a sense, pick up the phone at any moment. And I wonder what conversations you've had with him this week, maybe this month, maybe this year. The things that you've expressed to him, the joys, the hardships, the deep hurts, perhaps even those spouts of anger about the apparent inactivity, the disinterest, maybe even the silence on the other line. I think prayer can evoke a mixture of emotions, it's framed as a conversation, yet it can feel like just a one-way conversation, yeah? You're just talking into the ether and getting nothing back. This silent noise, and in that void, we are filled with questions. Are you there, Lord? Are you even listening to me? Do you even care? Why won't you answer? Or, this is not what I wanted. Can I even trust you? And there's so many ways we could tackle the subject of prayer. It's so broad, it's so deep, and I guess that's why we're, we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks unpacking it, because we couldn't really do it justice in just one moment. But one thing that we cannot separate from prayer is, is presence, and perhaps this is the best place to start, and that's kind of where we're going to go this morning. Back to the housing executive answer machine. <laughs> 
With no ill will towards Mexicans or Mexican jingles, I have learned to silently loathe that sound each week. It's like the jingle of your morning alarm clock, yeah? There's nothing particularly offensive about that sound, but it's the feeling you associate with it, yeah? It's that pit-in-the-stomach feeling of dread. Let's see if I can even invoke that with you right now. Hold on. We experiment here. Most of you probably have Apple phones, I'm guessing. Ooh. Did anyone have that kind of weird jittery feeling in their stomach? Yes? Do it again. (gasps) I get that. That's horrible. As I said, there's nothing particularly offensive about that sound, but it's what we associate with it, yeah? The time to wake up, time to get going with your day, usually time to get ready for work, to face the rush hour, to face that colleague you'd rather not see, to continue that task you wish was over already. Deadlines await, but you'd much rather turn over, put the snooze on, and stay in bed, yeah? I wonder what feelings arise when you even consider the presence of God. When I think about my life and the presence of God, there's often a plethora of responses. God's presence is not always a comfortable thing, is it? More often than not, it isn't, actually, when I think about my past. Yet I think in all cases, there is a moment when we actually relinquish ourselves and put our trust in him fully. And in that moment of God's presence, there's this real sense of security and peace that passes all understanding. I also believe God's presence is not just something we experience inwardly, but his presence actually affects the very spaces in which we inhabit and find ourselves. And scripture is full of instances where God's presence inhabits a physical space. And those are times to take note. And you know what? I believe God still does that today. If you've got your Bibles, and there's some on the tables, um, we're going to be looking at a passage in John, John 15, 1 to 17. Um, As we look at this idea of presence and prayer, but specifically today, presence as a prerequisite to prayer. So John 15, verses 1 to 17. Verse one, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is that, he, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that you may, and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that, your love, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So we're talking about presence. The scripture there talks about that in the terms of abiding or remaining. And we find ourselves in a unique part of John's gospel. We're between chapters 13 and 17 is a special place in the life of the disciples and Jesus. It was just before the Passover feast. It was a significant celebration in the Jewish calendar. There were no more crowds. There was no more religious leaders. It was just Jesus and his disciples. All of the gospels, sorry, of all the gospels, John's account is a true storyteller's account of Jesus' life. And he frames this time so beautifully at the beginning of chapter 13, verses one and two. He says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his father. And I love this bit. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. And now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper. Perhaps one of the most significant meals the disciples would have with Jesus. Immediately after this, he washed their feet. And after that, he imparts final wisdom. He prays for them and the world. He's preparing them for the coming events of his arrest, their desertion, his crucifixion, his death, and resurrection. And as they, this small band of people, begin the most revolutionary movement in all of history. But you know what? I always like to think of it as Jesus simply spending time with his friends to enjoy their presence and for them to enjoy his over a meal. I wonder how you feel when you hear the words of Jesus enjoying their presence or even Jesus enjoying your presence. I know for me, it took a long time to reach a place, not so much where I could enjoy Jesus' presence, but rather getting my head and heart around the idea, the truth, that Jesus enjoyed mine. Not just to be known as, but to feel like a son and daughter of the Father. I think Peter's response to when Jesus wanted to wash their feet was just a great example of this. He'd already declared early on who Jesus was, as he was the Messiah, he was the Lord. Peter could accept that he was God, a good teacher, an amazing teacher, but he couldn't accept himself as being loved and cared for by God in that intimate way. Perhaps you're in a place at the moment where the presence of God almost feels like sitting down for a supper with him, or perhaps such moments seem quite distant a distant memory, and you doubt whether they actually existed at all. Maybe you're just a complete skeptic about God's existence, and this whole language about God who is close and considered a friend, who knows you and delights in you, is just totally alien. You know what? You're really welcome here, and that's okay. Stay on the journey. 
I'm sure when the disciples looked back years later to this meal, they would remember it as a significant moment in their time with Jesus. And perhaps in the moments of doubt and the hardship as they were building this church, they would recall these words and prayers of Jesus at that particular supper table. One of the most significant things Jesus teaches his disciples during the supper is the promise that whatever they ask in his name, it will be given to them. He does not just mention it once, he actually mentions it six times between chapters 13 and 17. And we find it slap bang in this passage when we read. If you look, look at the passage we just read, verse seven, it says, but if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask anything you want and it will be granted to you. When we consider prayer, Perhaps the first thought that, you, that comes into your head is, is something about asking, that we ask God something when we pray. And you know what? There's nothing really wrong with that statement. Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, um, the Lord's Prayer, it outlines a prayer that contains in it requests to God. You know, give us our daily bread is a request. It's an ask. And I suppose we could go to that shopping list idea and God is behind the checkout, just beeping our requests through the checkout. You know, we present our items of need and our wants, but we barely glance at the person behind the counter. Do you ever shop at M&S? Would you do a weekly shop at M&S? Anyone? Who's brave enough to put their hand up to that? No. Um, Usually it's the meal for two, isn't it, yeah? with a nice bottle of wine. Uh, If you ever see someone with a trolley full of stuff, you're like, whoa, they've got the money, they've got the money, definitely. And so you take a few items, the, the nice items that you want, usually the meal for two, and you approach the counter. And I don't know about you, but M&S, the shop assistants behind the counter, they seem to be the most friendliest people that you'll ever come across. Have you noticed this? If you compare it to Tesco or Asda, they don't just say hello, they start a conversation with you, you know? The cynical side of me is thinking, yeah, they've been trained to do that, you know? It's all part of the psyche of enjoying the shopping experience so that I will come back. That's the cynical side of me anyway. And so all of a sudden, this habitual, how's it going, come back, comes back with a response and a conversation, and it can catch you off guard. And if you're not ready for it, you're inwardly thinking, could you just beat my items, take my money, and just let me go, please? I'm not really in the mood for anything else, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm quite a horrible person deep down inside. Perhaps we like the idea of a conversation with God, but I wonder how much the terms depend on us and what we think our needs and wants are. We'd rather rush through the checkout and be on our way. And I'm not necessarily saying that we're consciously doing that, but when we think about our time with God this week, or month and year, has it been more or less like this? I want you just to imagine this for a moment. Could you imagine waiting at the checkout in M&S, and suddenly that person behind the checkout, he takes the bread on the conveyor belt, and he breaks it. He takes the bottle of wine, and he pours a glass for you. He stops the conveyor belt, and he takes his focus off the items. And he just starts to stare at you. He sighs. It's not a sigh of resign, but it's a sigh that expresses 
some enjoyment, some deep enjoyment in this moment. You're probably thinking, this is a bit weird. But their stare seems to penetrate your exterior and looks deep into your soul. It is as if they're considering all your life in that moment, past, present, future, and you're left feeling utterly laid bare. You have this paradoxical feeling of trembling and fear, but yet there's this warmth, there's this love, there's this trust. There's a part of you just wants to take your things and run, but you cannot help but sit and remain in their presence. Those needs, those wants, the stuff that you bring, they become less of a priority. And what becomes significant is that you are fully aware of each other's presence. And it actually perhaps gives you a new perspective on that stuff that you brought in the first place. Before prayer, there's presence. And I think this is the kind of relationship and conversation that God wants to have with us. And this is what Jesus is saying in our passage. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Jesus uses the allegory of a vine to explain the special relationship between the Father himself and us as followers of Jesus. And we have three characters depicted here. You've got God the Father, who's the gardener or the vine dresser. You have Jesus, who's the vine itself, the stem. And then you have the disciples or the followers of the way who are the branches. And Jesus expresses the idea of remaining in him through the image of a vine, branch remaining in the main stem of the vine. As the theologian Tasker puts it, the branches of the vine are not self-centered or independent. They have no source of life within themselves, and the fact they need constantly to be pruned makes it apparent that their life is drawn not from a source outside themselves, not from themselves in isolation, but from the stem of the vine to which they belong. And the ancients spoke of pruning as a cleansing of the branches. In verse one, Jesus states that he is not just the vine, but he's the true vine. The idea of a vine as a picture of Israel would have been familiar imagery to the Jewish readers. However, John's use of the word true or genuine vine implies that Israel had been an imperfect foreshadowing of what was to be found in the perfection of Jesus. He became what Israel or the temple could never truly be, a direct and perfect conduit to the presence of Yahweh in which all could participate and enter into. I want us to quickly look back at the story of God and presence. And I want us to view it through the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. Remain in me, abide in me, and I will abide in you. And hopefully this insight will highlight how radically transformative these words were to his disciples and for us today. If you want, you can go to Genesis for us. Uh, Take your Bibles if you like. When reading the Genesis account of creation, we are introduced not to this loner God, but rather a being that is already in relationship. In Genesis 1, verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Instead of saying, I will, God says, let us. It suggests a conversation within God, revealing a God who is plural and communal. Whereas the plants and animals are made according to their kind, the man and woman are made according to God's likeness. 
We are set apart, unique in all of God's creation. We exist to be in community, and we are made to be in community with God. Karl Barth, a 20th century theologian, puts it like this. It's quite a lengthy quote, but it, it puts it so well, so bear with me. If we make even a slight effort to look on God, to conceive him as he reveals himself to us, as God in mystery, God in the highest, God the triune and almighty, we must be astonished at the fact that there ourselves in the world alongside and outside him. God has no need for us. He has no need of the world and heaven and earth at all. He is rich in himself. He has fullness of life, all glory, all beauty, all goodness and holiness reside in him. He is sufficient unto himself. He is God, blessed in himself. To what end then? The world. How can there be something alongside God of which he has no need? This is the riddle of creation. And the doctrine of creation answers that God, who does not need us, created heaven and earth and myself of sheer fatherly kindness and compassion, apart from any merit or worthiness of mine, for all of which I am bound to thank and praise him, to serve him and to be obedient, which is assuredly true. Do you feel in those words amazement in the face of creation, of the goodness of God, in which God does not will to be alone, but to have a reality beside himself? Creation is grace, a statement at which we should like best to pause in reverence, fear, and gratitude. Wow. Creation is an act of grace. It is by his grace we were made to share his love, to be in his presence, to converse with him. And it was grace that caused God to leave the glory of heaven and enter our world as a man. When you think of God in this light and then bring it back to a room in a house in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, is sitting with his disciples, and with these words he utters, remain in me, and I will remain in you. He is, in effect, stirring in their depths the being, the image of God, harking back to a time and place when we walked with the Father. And it's so sad, when we go on to a few chapters in Genesis, it's such a a lovely picture, but a sad picture depicted in the fall of a time when we walked with God. If you go to chapter three, verse eight, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. The narrative suggests that Adam and Eve often walked with God, yet the point it references is when this precious presence and abiding with the Father is lost. They hide from him, And they've been trying, and we've been trying, to hide from him ever since. As Leopold puts it, mistrust and fear have taken the place of trust and the free communion with Yahweh that had previously prevailed. Instead of running to him, they run from him. Communion with the Heavenly Father is no longer their highest delight. Even if we tried, we were unable to remain in the presence of God. The fall can often be framed as humanity rebelling and turning away from God. And in a sense, that's true. But rather, God, as a result of our attempt to exert our will above his, seeking purpose outside of our design, corrupting the goodness of his creation, he had no choice but to remove us from him. And that's what he did. He he took Adam and Eve and he put them east of the garden. And actually, that was an act of mercy and grace. 
because to remain would have meant facing the full extent of God's wrath and justice. And so he placed us east of the garden and we've been moving ever so slightly, ever so more east away from him. If you look at the narrative, it's a narrative of always moving east. It's interesting. Yet, there's still this imprint, a potter's mark, if you will, the Imago Dei, the image of God within us that is prompting and calling each and every one of us back to Eden, back to a time when God walked in the cool of the day and he did it with delight as he walked with us. A few weeks ago, uh, I was chatting to a colleague of mine at work. And as you do, you just chat about life, don't you? Um, And I was about to head off uh, to see some clients in the afternoon. I'm going to be careful here what I say. (laughs) But she asked me, she just started asking questions about church, faith, spirituality. And so I put my bag down. She had a lot of questions. She had a lot of doubts. And I didn't really challenge any of those just thought, you know what, I just want to share the story of God in my life. And we're talking away, and she's kind of expressing some of the things she's experienced, her difficulties and hardships with church. And you know what? The presence of God turned up in that moment. And I remember at one point, I just said to her, I said, have you ever asked him to reveal himself to you? To say, Lord, I want to know you, but I have a lot of doubts would you reveal yourself to me in the way that you want to do it? And she stopped and she actually said, whoa. I just felt this tingling, this sense of something. It's the presence of God. That's because the image of God is in her and is beckoning her back to him. God delights to see us walk with him again. But the presence was lost at the fall. And since then, in the Old Testament, we see that God's presence is is really guarded. God still seeks his people. He, He came to Abraham and then to Moses on a mountain. And then his presence was was known through the tent of meeting. And then eventually the temple. But it was guarded. It was with strict precautions of what not to do. You did not dare step on the foot of the mountain when God was present. And you certainly didn't go into the tent of meeting to the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest had that privilege. He acted as mediator, but he also had to observe specific rites and rituals in order to enter that place where God's presence dwelt on earth. So there's still this distance, this guarding, this wall, this veil. And if you just imagine maybe if that existed today and you came to worship God. Where's Dave? Where's he gone? There he is. And Dave was our great high priest. And there was a veil here. He'd be the only one who could communicate with him. And we'd be relying on him to do that. And you know what they would have done? Because they were so fearful of the presence of God They would have tied a cord around him as he went in there, just in case he did something wrong in the rites and rituals beforehand. Or maybe medically, he passed out because no one would go in there and they would be pulling him back out. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? But that's the presence of God. 
Yet God did not leave Israel or humanity to the separation from him. He restored it in such a beautiful way. He came to this earth. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's go back to our passage. Verse 16 in John. I love this bit. You did not choose me. I chose you. As I said earlier, it was an act of grace and mercy that God chose to put us out for God. And here he is saying again, I'm choosing you. I'm choosing to bring my presence back to you. It was removed, but I am restoring it. When we think about remaining or abiding in Jesus, it conveys a sense to wait on him, to come back to a place of surrender and trust and acceptance without question, to act in accord with him. Yet the opposite to abiding is is to avoid, to carry on, to depart, and we, we saw that in the fall. When you consider the narrative, the instant God began walking in the garden, the first thing Adam and Eve did was they just hid They avoided God. And this has been the story of humanity ever since. Yet as we have seen throughout the history of God has continued to pursue us and make his presence known. And then finally through Jesus we have an unobstructed view. God, God no longer sets us apart from himself. Rather he came in flesh and blood. He planted his feet firmly on our ground. And he walked with us. He sat with us. He listened. He loved, and he continues to beckon us to follow him, to enter into his presence. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. And Jesus begins to highlight the fruits of abiding in his presence in this passage, and if we had more time, I'd love to go into this more. But I'd encourage you this week just to look at those things, the fruits described, answered prayer, love, Obedience, joy, friendship with God, and God glorified. And in a moment, I am going to highlight just a couple of these things. And I'm just wondering what God is saying to you now about his presence. Amelia, she was the one on the microphone earlier. Oh my goodness. Embarrassing moment for dad. She's my delight, actually. I love her to bits. And I'm learning that God often speaks through her to me. And one of the phrases she says to me, often says to me, is, wake up, Daddy, wake up. I'm not sleeping in bed, by the way. This is in the middle of the day. I'm totally awake. <laughs> She'll come up to me and be like, wake up, Daddy. And it's not to physically get me up from slumber. What she means by it is, Daddy, take your attention over to this. Wake up to the thing that I'm seeing. And I feel that God is saying that to us constantly. Wake up to what I'm doing. You know, we can go throughout our walk with God totally oblivious to what he's actually doing. We kind of go through the habits, the rituals, or what it is to be a Christian, to come along to church, to go home. But we're totally asleep to what God is doing. And I just feel like God this morning is saying to us and to me, wake up, see what I'm doing. 
One of the fruits was obedience. Don't like to talk about obedience, (laughs) to obey. But God's presence came to me in a very particular way when I was young. I was about 14, 15 at church in North London. And this weekend, we had uh, Operation Mobilization. Some of you might remember the organization and the mercy ships that would go around across the globe. And we had three people from Owen come. And each night over that weekend spoke about their experience of God and why they felt called to follow him uh, through Owen. And I tell you what, oh my goodness, God's presence came in such a terrifying way for me as a 15-year-old boy. And I remember coming to my pastor and I was like, I just feel like God is just hounding me this weekend and I don't know why. And he said something really wise to me. He said, "Um, just just say to God, I hear you, Lord, and I'm listening. What do you want to say to me? And it was a scary thing to ask God because I didn't know what he was expecting. And as that weekend rolled on, I really wrestled with God because I actually felt he was calling me to something specific in life. And that was to, to work with the marginalized, the homeless. And I really didn't want to do it, if I'm honest, at that time. But God was really pressing in on me over that weekend in such a tangible, real way. We talked about the presence of God, not just being an inward thing, but around us. And I'm not saying that a calling is fixed either. I believe it evolves and it grows as we do and as God directs. One of my favorite proverbs is 16 verse 9. Man makes plans in his heart, but it's God who directs his steps. And when I think about that moment as a 15-year-old boy, I would never have dreamed that I would be here in Belfast, working for Simon Community, working with people that are truly marginalized and excluded in our society. And there have certainly been times when I've tried to take the reins as we do, and that never really works out too well, does it, when we try and take the reins of God? But he is gracious and he is good in that he always beckons us back to the path that he wants for us. And you know, when the presence of God manifests itself in those ways, in that way as it did when I was a 15-year-old boy, there are times when we will need to wrestle with him about the plans that we have made in our hearts God always has a better path for us to tread. Remain in him and he will remain in you. Trust and obey. These are the fruits of abiding in his presence. I wonder what you're wrestling with God about. What do you need to relinquish to him? What are you avoiding? What do you need to allow God to prune? The act of abiding is to relinquish. It's to give up of yourself, of your self-ambition, a mentality that we are self-sufficient to achieve what lays ahead. But it's God who builds and what he desires and hopes for from us is a life of commune with him, that our waking thoughts, our daily breaths, even our nightly dreams would be directed to and consumed by a deep love for him. It is here we find the renewal of self becoming the person God intended us to be. And it's only here that renewal begins to emerge, where we bear fruit. God's presence changes the atmosphere that we live in. 
when we meet as followers, especially, that is true. It's not just out of ritual, but necessity, and with no agenda that the presence of God comes when we meet together. And I'm just going to read you something. Um, as leaders, we've been reading Dirty Glory. If you've read this book, it's fantastic. I would encourage you to get a copy and read it for yourselves. Um, Pete Grieg, who started 24-7 prayer, I'm sure most of you will know, is talking about prayer, but also presence. And I'd just like to read these words to you. Friends from school and the church youth group began to meet in our shed on Wednesday nights. We sang songs with the guitars out of tune again and again. We found an old book of earnest Christian poetry by a Catholic priest and read these to each other as meaningfully as we could. I think we tried communion once or twice. We chatted to God about things and looked for the good bits in the Bible. We really didn't have a clue what to do. None of us knew anything about the Holy Spirit. We just did anything. Most of it was toe-curling embarrassing to see if we could somehow attract God's attention. It was truly terrible. Half of it was probably heretical. The local vicar heard about it and told me to stop. And of course, that was when I knew we were really onto something. Then one day, the Holy Spirit turned up and started to do amazing things. Someone received a vision. He saw a sword with the word envy written on its blade. I can still remember it because I'd never known anyone receive a vision before. And because it was a personal challenge to me, the living God had just spoken to me directly. Word got out. Young people started to come from all over the area. A guy we called, we should call Mark, turned up because he liked a girl called Becky. <laughs> he wasn't a Christian, but probably quite liked the idea of being squashed in a shed with her for the night. We started worshiping as usual, and the Holy Spirit started doing his thing. But suddenly Mark maneuvered his way out of the shed. He couldn't get out fast enough. I followed him, and we sat on the concrete step outside. What's up? I asked. He was as pale as a sheep. God's in there, he whispered. Uh, yeah, I said. Whenever two or three gather in his name of Jesus, you know. Mark cut me off. Don't quote me any of your stupid Bible verses, he hissed. Pete, you don't seem to understand. God, as in Mr. Creator of the universe, God is in your shed. And the thing is, he paused, and he looked at me intently. The thing is, if I go back in there, I'm going to have to sort out some stuff, which I don't really want to talk about. Mark never did set foot back inside my mother's shed. Even Becky couldn't lure him back inside. He had experienced God's holiness in a way that challenged him to change. Eventually, those Wednesday night sessions fizzled out. We left school and went our separate ways. But I've rarely, to this very day, encountered the presence of God the way we did as teenagers in that shed. I look back now and realize that the Holy Spirit was beginning to teach me years before the birth of 24-7 prayer the life-changing power of passionately seeking the Father's presence in a particular place. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, verse 13. I think, you know, the most significant moments of God's presence have not been in solitary spaces or moments on my own it's when I've been with others. When two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst, God says. When you consider significant moments of God in history, it hasn't been around a person, but a people. And you know what? I want to experience more of the presence of God, but I don't want it to be limited just to me and my God. 
We are created as relational beings and it is here that we align with the image of God in us. May we know the power and presence of God as a community. Do we dare ask for it? I'm gonna invite the band back up because we're gonna spend a bit of time responding. Um, I said to the, to the guys in the Cedar Leadership team as I was preparing for this today that um, I felt God was wanting us to, to respond and to, to leave a space where we could do that. As you know, we always come to the table and what better way to do that in the knowledge that we have a God who is not far off but is ever so close. So please come when you're ready. Partake of the bread and the wine as a reminder that God is present with you, that he is calling you forward into the things, the purposes, the plans that he has for you. And would you dare to relinquish yourself to him and say, you know what, Lord, I trust you with what you have for me. No more hiding, no more running away. I'm with you on this.